Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about the Pope, we're talking about Moody, and we're joined by Pastor Jeff Fraser. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey everyone, welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. Did you know we're on the Facebooks? You can find us over at The Common Good Radio Show. All of our articles are posted there. You can leave a comment. You can send us a message if you like. Plus, the show is podcasted. If you ever missed anything or you want to go back and re-listen to it, an added bonus is you can share that with a friend. You can subscribe, rate, and review. All of that helps us out a whole bunch. And one of the things that we have been doing, I guess, for the last few months or so is kind of dedicating this first segment to things that are sort of headline worthy. Brian and I may not have much of an opinion on just yet, but every once in a while, sort of like, ah, we should at least mention this. It's it's news that is is either noteworthy or heartbreaking or something that's kind of happening right now. And uh, we don't have a, a bunch. Sometimes we'll do five or six this first segment. I only have three right now. And what I have been doing is just letting Brian choose which one he'd like to tackle, which uh, I have my thoughts about which one you're not going to go for. But why don't you yeah, go ahead and pick your story du jour. You have your see. Now I want to try to pick the one you think I'm not going to pick. But, uh, the one that caught my eye that I found uh, to be really interesting. Uh, there's one of them in this list that's really heartbreaking. But the, but I think a very newsworthy one, especially in the religious world, is that Pope Francis. Uh, he declared support for civil unions for same-sex couples for the first time. And this is quite the historic thing. And it's even less. Well, it is a lot about the issue itself, but it's even uh, it, it's it's what does this say about this pope and the direction of the Catholic Church? And, uh, you know, you and I have always been uh, through the course of our show. I think we've we've been very interested in the things that this pope says, even as non-Catholics. And uh, this is a huge kind of a monumental thing in the Catholic Church. And it will be interesting to see if there's any changes, because this wasn't uh, authoritative teaching on his part. I, I know there's a difference in when the Pope teaches, yeah. uh, but for the Pope to come out on a documentary and say this uh, is going to be really embraced uh, enthusiastically by many Catholics, I would assume, and be really uh, discouraging and angering to other Catholics. And so uh, this Pope is as uh, certainly uh, not shown a pension to back away from controversial topics in the Catholic Church. And so this is a pretty seismic thing, uh, I would say, that the Pope has done within the Catholic Church today. Yeah, and, we, and we've had him on the show a couple of times, John Armstrong, who some have called the Mac Daddy of the uh, new ecumenism. I probably add the Mac Daddy part. That's the Mac what, Daddy. I don't yeah. think that's what most people are. But he's John is not only incredibly ecumenical, He's also remarkably educated, remarkably orthodox. Like he's certainly he's someone who has done, I mean, decades of reading. He he's often contended for the recognition of civil unions distinct from sacramental marriage, mm-hmm. and so he he posted about this a couple hours ago and was like, "Hey, I I've been saying this for a long time. Uh, the the Pope is going to get ripped to shreds for this, but I yeah. I applaud him. I'll be curious to know how people respond to someone like John, who you know fits in a pretty kind of orthodox camp." Either way, you're right. It's yeah. it's it's a it's a massive statement. I mean, he even mentions here in the CNN article the part of what the Pope was saying is what we have to create is a civil union law. That way, they are legally covered. I'll be really curious to see over the next couple of days. We'll probably revisit this honestly because yeah. my guess is a number of religious leaders are going to come out um, on multiple sides of this, and it. I pray it doesn't get messy, but it might. It might. You know, yeah. that's sort of my prediction that this might uh, this might look a bit different a week from now, that's right. but uh, that's right. I man, a couple other stories that I wanted to at least touch on briefly. 
and neither of them are very positive stories at all. That's right. putting it lightly. So here's one out of uh, Christian Post says um, Moody Bible head responds to Title IX claims sex abuse mishandling. Quote: My heart aches. This is by Brandon Showalter. What's what's going on here with this story? Yeah, it's it's another sad story from uh, from an evangelical institution or a church. So during Tuesday morning's chapel service, Moody Bible Institute president Mark Job and provost Dwight Perry addressed the students, <clears throat> excuse me, about allegations that emerged over the weekend in a change.org petition in which students and alumni detailed their experiences of being sexually assaulted and harassed and how their claims were not taken seriously. So speaking soberly, Job stressed that the allegations troubled him deeply as a father of three, one of whom is a Moody Bible graduate. Uh, the steps Moody will be taking will in no way undermine their commitment to the historic Christian witness on marriage and sexuality, he added, and their goal is to ensure the safety of every student. He said this, as I listen to these students, my heart aches with their pain and the tears expressed through uh, written ways as they explain their stories. And so, uh, you know, this is another uh, huge uh, evangelical institution, Moody Bible Institute. Mark Job has not been the president there for very long, two years, I believe. We've had him on the show a couple of times. I find Mark to be a, a really impressive person. And to hear his words here, you know, uh, I think the best we can do is to be prayerful for an institution like Moody, that that this would be uh, a a time of not just repentance, but it would be a time of cleansing that needs to happen or purging of anything uh, sinful that needs to be there. And prayer for those uh, who have been hurt, first and foremost, that uh, that there would be healing along the way here. It's just another sad story. I, I just get discouraged, uh, yeah. you know, and you get reminded that, you know, Christian institutions are far from perfect. <laughs> uh, sometimes it's scary how far from perfect they can be over the years. Yeah. Uh, but but I find myself increasingly just wanting to pray about these situations rather than have a take, right? Because you're like, this isn't my school. This isn't my people. But praying for Mark Job and the others in leadership and also obviously for those who have been hurt over the years. Yeah, and there's a, there's a change.org petition as well that's got almost 3,000 signatures, which is significant. I don't, I don't know if you saw that or not. No, I didn't. But that's that's hard. That's hard to know that the numbers can be that high and people who have, you know, uh, and hopefully things come to light now that need to come to light so that there can be healing, could be systemic changes at Moody where needed. And hopefully the school comes out better on the other end. But more so, hopefully those who have been uh, who have suffered at the hands of whatever at, went on here uh, find healing and find justice. Well, and it's it's worth finding the petition too because there's there's a lot of comments from other people who are who are now sharing other aspects of their story, and mm, it's it's hard. it's kind of one of those don't look away moments for me where you're yep. like, oh man, I don't want to watch the footage of this, or I don't want to read the article of that, but it's like no, I, I really think we need to. So yeah, I, I would encourage you to read the whole article and uh, mm -hmm. maybe even find the petition and, and see what's going on there. Lastly, another really difficult story yeah. parents of 545 children separated at u.s mexico border still cannot be found what's going on here yeah i mean a lot, the the shock of just that headline right it says despite a federal judge's order that the government reunite families who'd been separated at the u.s mexico border under the trump administration's no tolerance migration policy the parents of 545 children still can't be found. Thousands of families were separated. The ACLU, excuse me, successfully sued the government, winning the court order to reunite families. Thousands of parents and children were reunited within a week, but about a thousand families who'd been separated were not covered by the initial court order. The passage of time has made finding both parents and children more difficult. And so, 
there, there's all sorts of guesses as to how this is all going to play out. But at the very heart of this, you have 545 children who are separated, parents probably sent back to where they came, kids, ca- and, and who knows if these kids will ever be reunited with their parents, what happens to these kids, uh, what are these parents, it's just such a heartbreaking, as parents, uh, just trying to put yourself in this, it's just a heartbreaking story. There's no two ways around it. It's just a terrible story. There's a, a relevant story on this on the same uh, the same news, and it's an interview asking people that are responsible for telling these kids that they may not be able to track down their parents. And yeah, it's again, I, I didn't mean to start on on such a down note, but it was like one of those it's important stories that I saw this morning. And I was like, yeah, we definitely need to talk about this, and um, I think. I mean, for everybody, but for Christ followers in particular, like th- this needs to not only break our heart, but it should move us to some kind of action. I don't, I don't know what that action is, to be honest. Right. Um, call your congressman and woman. Um, I, you know what I mean? Like, it just is something that I, That's right. it leaves yeah. you feeling like you got the wind knocked out of you yep. and also kind of helpless, you know, like it's, it's horrific and also so overwhelming. Like what, what, what can we even do here in Chicagoland? And I would, I would employer to to begin with prayer but don't end there you know let let yeah, prayer lead yeah. us to action and i think that's um gosh what what a what a heartbreaking story and we'd love to know what sure. you think there's maybe other perspectives to this that would be helpful for us to to consider or weigh in and and uh, maybe we'll cover this again sometime later in the week well change of gears a little bit coming up next jeff fraser is the lead pastor at chapel street church right here in geneva illinois and he's gonna be joining us for the next two segments here on the common good on am 1160 hope for your life Hi everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm and we're absolutely thrilled to have not just for one but for two segments, Pastor Jeff Fraser. Welcome to the show, sir. Hey, thanks. It's great to be on. Appreciate glad, it. Glad to have you on. Would, would you just take a minute or two or the whole segment if you want and just <laughs> inter- introduce yourself to our audience? I'd be happy to. So yeah, my name is Jeff Fraser. I pastor a church called Chapel Street Church in the far west suburbs of Chicago, the Geneva, Batavia, St. Charles, Aurora area. We're a multi-site church. Well, that's a relative term during COVID now. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Our our church is 126 years old. Um, I like to refer to us as 126-year-old adolescent. (laughs) Uh, I've been to the church for over 20 years, but I've been in the lead pastor seat for uh, just about four and a half years. Um, So lots of, I just love our, love our, the community here and the, what I get to do. Um, my, I'm married to Aaron for 26 years, have three children, Noah, who's in law school at downtown at University of Chicago, Hannah, who's just a we- recent Wheaton grad, and Benjamin, who's living at home and in the workforce. So, um, yeah, we're, we're, <laughs> that's a little bit about me. I, I love strong coffee. I love C.S. Lewis writing. I love football. <laughs> I love the church. I love the word of God. And so, and I love, I love uh, podcasts and ra- radio interviews, my favorite thing. That's awesome. Perfect. Good answer. Good answer. <laughs> good answer. Yes. Good. Uh, Jeff, I'm I'm curious. It's always fun to have other pastors on just to talk and get to know you. Uh, I'm curious. Uh, you said you were in the Chapel Street in the church for a long time, but then became the senior pastor. Yeah. You don't often hear that where somebody kind of grows into the senior pastor role. What is kind of the Reader's Digest version of that story? I'm I'm sure there's some fascinating twists and turns to it. You know, thanks. That's it. Well, first of all, pastors are not good at giving readers, readers digest version. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but um, sadly, you're right, uh, Brian. It, it is not a common story, but I think it should be. Mm-hmm. So I, I came, I, I worked at Willow Creek Community Church in the, in the 90s uh, as in high school ministry and student impact days, a long time ago. Came here in 1999 
as a student ministries pastor, um, then First Baptist Church of Geneva with one campus. Uh, we grew fairly rapidly, um, and I kind of did just about everything under the sun, uh, membership, small groups, teaching, uh, high school ministry, college ministry, and grew in my gifts and experience here as the church grew. We, uh, we kind of backed our way into being multi-site accidentally. <laughs> That's another story. <laughs> but uh, began to preach more and share the responsibilities of the lead seat with our Pastor Brian Coffey, uh, who's still on our staff, and transitioned uh, into the lead pastor role, as I said, about almost five years ago. And, um, but even the two years prior to that, uh, we shared about everything. We, we, you would not have known who the lead pastor was if he came to our church unless you saw a sign on the door or on the website. He was very collaborative and was never threatened by other people's success, shared the pulpit, and we were really effectively co-pastoring. I mean, I was clearly reporting to him, but the, the experience of the average attender was there were two of us. Mm-hmm. And then he handed off the day-to-day leadership and vision and direction and uh, took a different role, and I've been in that role. So it's just been – I'm really – I praise God. Uh, yeah. Brian often says that the reason it worked is because I stayed. I mm-hmm. I will respond to that by saying the reason I stayed is because he made it possible for me to stay. Mm-hmm. He made room for me to stay, hmm. which is uh, – so I'm very grateful for that. Yeah, I have a lot of follow-up questions because I actually uh, – my first job out of undergrad was as a youth pastor, and I became lead pastor of that church about four or five years later. But it doesn't sound like my situation was in any way like yours <laughs> at all, and that's a story for another time. But part of what you had yeah. said to, to Brian's question was that it should be this way more often. Can you, can you tell me a little bit more about succession and legacy and apprenticeship and like why you think we actually yeah. should see more of that, not less? Well, I mean, I, I, yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't know that I have data for this, but churches are famous for doing transitions poorly. Mm-hmm. Uh, people hold on to power too long. They, uh, boards and, and, and leadership struggles uh, for who's in control. And it's just, I think, really sad and it damages the kingdom. And very often churches, a transition of senior pastor leadership is traumatic for a church. And there's loss of momentum and loss of kingdom impact, at least for a time. So when I say should, I just mean it, we have opportunity to do it well, uh, and, and to and I think, but some things are required. A humility of leadership is required, longevity is required, prayer is required, and so um, and, we, and I'm grateful that all of those things were present here. So I, you know, I, there was an environment where there was always room for me to grow in my gifts. Frankly, if um, if if Brian had not taken that approach, if this was not that kind of environment, I probably would have left to find other opportunities. And from time to time, churches came calling. Um, and you know, one church in Green Bay asked me to be their lead pastor. I said, just on principle, I could never live in Green Bay. I'm totally <laughs> <laughs> kidding. But um, but but all, all kidding aside, you know, I I, I think it's um, we and I feel like now that I'm in that seat, and I feel I'm new in that seat, even though I've been in this church for a long time. I want to continue that legacy. I want to make room for our younger pastors to grow in their gifts and opportunities. Mm-hmm. Now, that that means you've got to hold things loosely. It means you've got to be willing to give things away. And I'm not always great at that, but um, but I'm I had a predecessor who was. Hmm. That's a that's an encouraging story. Uh, I know you said it used to be First Baptist Geneva, I believe you said, and now it's Chapel Street, and it probably <laughs> just sounds like a change of name. But that's a big deal when a church that old, especially changes name that yeah. probably comes with vision and direction walk us through that a little bit and the decisions that were made around that yeah that is a, was a very big deal so um uh, our church was part of the we, we are part of uh, what's called converge uh, denominationally formerly known as the baptist general conference and before that the swedish baptist conference hmm. our church was planted in 1896 or 94 i can't remember now i think in 94 
uh, by a group of families who didn't want to make the horse and buggy ride from uh, from Geneva to Batavia. So they planted <laughs> the first Swedish Baptist church of Geneva. And um, only Swedish was spoken in the church until the wow. 1920s. <laughs> so, um, and then um, they changed. They, they got rid of Swedish in the name because that sounded a little exclusive, you know. For uh, if, what if you're Norwegian or, or God forbid, German? You could you could you come? Hmm. And so they changed the First Baptist Church of Geneva. Um, and that's the church that I was been a part of, and I, um, that I came to be part of. And a great history if you knew us, but in the culture. The term Baptist doesn't isn't always a compliment. Don't, people don't associate that with necessarily good things. We're not ashamed of who we are as a denomination or a church, but it, 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 we increasingly saw that as a barrier to people coming to experience God's grace here. Mm. Second, the idea of First Baptist has ties to the Deep South. Often the first church was the white church. It just sounded elitist. It sounded stuffy. It didn't sound like who we are or wanted to be. It didn't sound missional in any way. Add to that Geneva, and we were a multi-site church in multiple communities, we just felt like we had to change the name. However, changing the name can feel sacred to people. People get nervous about that. And we just never did it until I took over the lead seat. So in the, <laughs> in the first year of, I know I, I, this, is a, this is a testimony to God's grace because lots of things could have gone badly. But I, in the first year <laughs> that I was in the lead pastor's seat, we changed our name. We uh, merged with a, a church, launched a campus, and, and started a capital funds campaign. So. Wow. And, and it all went okay, praise the Lord. <laughs> but specifically about the name, we wanted a name that fit with our mission. So the idea of Chapel Street, there's no street called Chapel Street. It's one word. The idea is that every individual Christ follower's house should be a chapel on its street. Mm-hmm. That every house should be a place of grace and faith and impact in their neighborhood and their community. That, um, so that's the idea, that a chapel is a small house of worship connected to a larger whole. Yeah. So the same way we have multiple campuses connected to a larger whole, we have each of our homes should be a, a chapel in a sense, a place of, of faith and worship and impact in our communities connected to the larger whole of the, of the church. So anyway, that's the short version. Cool. Yeah, I love that. That other voice you're hearing, by the way, is Pastor Jeff Frazier. He's the lead pastor at Chapel Street Church in Geneva. He's going to stick around for one more segment, and we're going to have to go there. We're going to ask him about COVID, some of his other endeavors, what the Lord's kind of doing in his life and their ministry. That's coming up next year on The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. And Brian and I, most of you are aware at this point, are both pastors here in the Chicagoland area. So one of the things we love to do is just kind of get into the head and heart of other local pastors because that's not something that often other people maybe necessarily are able to do. And uh, we're joined by Pastor Jeff Fraser, who is the lead pastor at Chapel Street Church in Geneva, talking a bit about uh, his transition into this role and some of the origins behind the name. And what, what I would love to, to ask you, Jeff, and it's on kind of everyone's mind all the time nowadays, it seems, is how are you guys, especially as a, as a multi-site church here in Chicagoland, navigating this new reality that is COVID? Well, that is the question. Every conversation seems to just drift toward COVID or the election, it seems like. And so I'm happy to talk about COVID. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, I just used this analogy with our senior leadership team um, earlier this week that it feels like steering a ship through the fog that just doesn't lift. Hmm. You know, I, I've been a false prophet throughout this. Oh, surely it won't be Easter. Oh, I'm sure we open by Mother's Day. Oh, I'm, yeah. I'm by the summertime. Oh, I'm sure by fall. Yeah. And here we are. And so we just keep adjusting. Um, and, you know, uh, it's 
I was having breakfast with a uh, fellow pastor, uh, Kelly Brady of, of Glen Ellen Bible Church, who I think, Brian, you know well. I do. Kelly and I were having breakfast, and Kelly was asking me questions about why we're doing what we're doing and, and, and the decisions we're making. And I was giving him all the, you know, the strategic answers with vision. And then I just paused and said, Kelly, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, we're, we're, I could give you this, this, this spiel. I could also defend it something else. We're, we're praying. We're making the best decisions we can. And so I think that's how a lot of us feel. We're, we're, we're building the plane as we're flying it, trusting God. And so far, God's been very gracious to us. Just quickly, a story. We, we had never streamed any service ever prior to COVID. Mm. Wow, wow. I had been resistant to that. And for a larger church, you'd think we would have. But we, I had been kind of resistant thinking that, well, that might encourage people to stay home. And, and we, but I finally had made the decision. People are checking us out ahead of time online. We want the experience to be good. We wanted people to have a way to stay connected. So we made the decision before COVID, okay, we're going to buy the infrastructure, train our staff, and we're, Easter of 2020, we're going to launch our first streaming service. Wow. And then COVID hit in March. Had yeah. we not made that decision six months earlier, we would have been in real trouble. Right. So I think God in, a, in his mercy prepared us uh, because our team has done a fan, phenomenal job ramping up and doing something they'd never done before. Hmm. Um, I, I routinely get complimented from people saying, we, we love your online presence. I'm like, you have no idea. We're making up. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But, uh, yeah. Anyway, exactly. Ironically, Jeff, uh, just Friday, I had breakfast with Kelly Brady. We had the same discussion. So we did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah try to None get of us know what we're doing. We're just not willing to admit it. Yeah. We just want to know that everyone else is doing the similar and having the same thoughts. But uh, you said right now, all the conversations kind of tend towards COVID or politics. So let's tend yeah. towards politics here. Right. Uh, don't really care who you're voting for or any of this. I'm more interested as a pastor. How are you navigating this crazy election season? What are you saying to your congregation? What is your hope for your church during this kind of crazy time? Well, we probably could take several segments on this, but there's no question that something shifted in our culture in 2016. And it's the narrative is, uh, and we can pick this apart, and it's nuanced for sure, but the narrative out there that um, white evangelicals are in the pocket of President Trump is done damage to our public witness. Whatever your ideological sensibilities are, whatever your political leanings are, that's just a reality that I think we all as pastors are navigating. Um, and I see more and more people uh, in our community and our, our church family who are, are what's forming their sense of their, what's forming their view of the world is their political ideology, not scripture, not the gospel, not, not their church. And so they're willing to leave a church family or change church families to, to fit more with their political sensibilities rather than the other way around. And so, at any rate, that's a, that's a real challenge for us, um, as it is for lots of pastors. Yeah. Um, tons of prayer, lots of conversation, staying off social media. Uh, um, I think it's, it's a cesspool and, and nobody it doesn't convert anybody anything in my opinion hmm. um well i shouldn't say staying off i'm trying to stick to the gospel and and promoting christ and what his agenda is on social media hmm. and not getting in 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 the weeds there um and then i think calling people those I, I often say this those people who feel like this this election is everything everything hinges on this election i want to say no it doesn't yes it's important i'm not would never deny that but if we believe what Jesus says about the church and about the gospel and about the future of, of history, everything does not hinge on an election in one country. And I think, I think the fact that some of us feel that way is, is, is 
putting on a uh, spotlight on the fact that we've made an idol of our politics. So I, I, I better get off the preacher soapbox here, but that's. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. That, that was almost the name of the show. Jeff was preacher soapbox. So, <laughs> preacher you, soapbox. Yeah, okay. yeah. <laughs> so some might argue that might even be a better name. Uh, one of the things I want to ask you, because you, as you were saying just a second ago, we could take multiple segments on any number of these topics, COVID or politics or race or scandal in the church. I mean, there's a billion things to talk about right now. Brian and I are both pastors, so we're often kind of predisposed to take that perspective. But I remember years ago hearing a lecture from a former pastor, and it was entitled something like Five Things Your Pastor Wants You to Know But Can't Tell You. And, you know, this month is Pastor Appreciation Month. And forgive me for not really prepping you for this, but I'd love for you to take a second. Like, what do you think is true for a lot of pastors that most non-pastors just have no idea about. As we're navigating all these things, most of them unforeseeable, like what do you what do you think people should know about the role of pastors and pastoral leadership that most people probably have no idea? Wow, that's a really good that's a really good question. I So one thing if I could say I'll say a couple of things. One is I'll say pastors are just, I'm just a guy. I think people expect us to, in this time to, to have answers. And, and as I mentioned, having breakfast with Kelly Brady, I, we're just, I'm just a guy watching the news like you, praying, trusting God, trying to figure it out. Yes, God's put me in a position of leadership, but I feel there's a calling on my life, but it doesn't make me special or have any any any, any pipeline to more information necessarily. <laughs> um, so second, pastors get pastors are getting more tired than they let on. Yeah, I often feel like um, – you know, I'm a pretty positive, upbeat person by nature. I'm an extrovert, um, and I, I enjoy challenges. But I'm, I feel far wearier than uh, perhaps I than I project at times. Mm-hmm. And and so that I think not not in a pity, not not, not wanting anyone's. I'm just I, I think sometimes uh, people, you know, when you're a kid, you don't think of your parents as real people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes, right. <laughs> so I think sometimes people don't think of their pastors as real people. And so yeah. we're just a, I'm just a guy, and I get tired too. Uh, and the third thing I'd say is that. Uh, even when we do things that you don't like or disagree with or don't understand, it's – well, I shouldn't say all of us, but I hope – at least it's done out of love. We love the Lord and we love, love our people. And um, so sometimes, particularly during COVID, we're tempted to believe the worst and say the best about each other. And so mm. – but our, our congregation here, I feel very supported and they're very gracious and, and kind to me. But, yeah, those are the three things, I guess. That's great. That's great. Uh, Jeff, as we start to close up here, I know there's other things that you're doing ministries within the church, outside the church. Tell us about two in particular, uh, Shepherd's Heart and Masterpiece Ministry. Let let us know what those are about. Okay. Uh, Shepherd's Heart is the umbrella term over all of our compassion and community outreach initiatives. It's a food pantry, uh, job coaching, uh, budgeting teams, counseling services, uh, minister justice, legal advice. Uh, It's a remarkable ministry led by Aaron Wise and her whole team. And they have reinvented the world wheel during COVID. And we've seen, we're serving 1400 people a month in, in, in the tri city. So it's not as if this it, it's people right in our own backyard that are in real need and crisis. And so we've seen that be the tip of the spear for impacting the community. Mm. And then masterpiece ministry, you mentioned that's the name we give to our special needs ministry. Mm. Um, and there's uh, it's Chris Duffy and Jay, Jamie Valentini um, do a remarkable job leading that ministry and um, it, that's a, you know, some of the things we have done in person have closed down because of COVID, but those those families are in great need right now because they're 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 in special needs and they're they're alone, and so we're we're finding new ways to try to minister to them as well. Awesome, that's remarkable. That other voice you're hearing is Pastor Jeff Fraser. He is the lead pastor at Chapel Street Church right here in Geneva, Illinois. Jeff, thank you so much. 
for taking the time to join us for a bit today. Hey, you're welcome. Thanks for having me on, guys. I appreciate what you're doing for the common good. It's a good oh, name. Thanks. Thank appreciate you. it. You're listening to the common good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. Every once in a while, Brian, we reference a little website called ChristianityToday.com. Some have perhaps accused us of referencing it too much. Perhaps. I don't know if that's (laughs) verified or not. But uh, here's a question that I would – well, let's just get into the article first. The headline simply reads, Christianity is about systemic change. That's one of the the conversations, one of the topics you and I have received – some pushback on any any time that we talk about systems or systemic change some people want to cheer other people maybe are a little more trepidatious around some of that language and i i found uh, this article by um daniel harrell pretty pretty helpful it's it's uh from back in september way back in september it's over a month old <laughs> way back but i i found it pretty pretty pointed pretty balanced and uh so i'm, I'm excited to have this discussion you want you want to get us into it let me read a little bit of it. And Daniel Harrell is just so we know this is an editorial. He's not like a guest opinion writer. He's the editor in chief of uh, Christianity Today. So right. uh, this holds some weight for the magazine, for the website. Aristotle, he writes, didn't quite say the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, but it is true for good and for ill. First Corinthians 12 looks at churches and bodies as systems that possess properties their parts cannot possess on their own. You can't be a community or a family by yourself. The same holds true with our political systems. A democratic government requires individual citizens working together as one nation for any common good to have a chance. No matter how good or how strong, every system eventually succumbs to entropy. Uh, increasing disorder is inherent in every system, including the very universe itself, right? Stephen Hawking reminded us, everything we do increases disorder in the universe. This world is inevitably running down. Our bodies age and die. Churches decrease. Governments collapse. Economies recess. Families fall apart. True, uh, some things get better over time, but to overcome the entropy, systemic improvement must exceed the ever-increasing disorder. Hmm. This is an enormous challenge as the ever-penetrating repercussions of systemic racism in America demonstrate. Centuries of structural and institutional policies discriminated against black citizens, sanctioning inadequate education and substandard health care, and creating economic disparity that restricted access to fair wages and decent housing. He goes on to say, because entropy exists, uh, always increases, I'm sorry, driving systems toward chaos, you might think the best strategy for opposing racism or any other systemic sin would be to let it be and watch it die. But that very chaos is the problem. Hmm. To let it be is to let it wreak havoc. So let's pause there just so we don't just keep reading. Uh, what do you think about his concept of, uh, systems always kind of uh, going towards chaos and where that leaves us now. Yeah, I, I don't know that I agree that systems always point toward chaos. Mm-hmm. In fact, my experience in some cases has been the opposite, at least in a very narrow slice of the pie that is the church world. Um, yeah. Andy Stanley has been writing about this for decades. He said, you know, systems by their very nature actually work against change. You know, what what you've established, you think about as, as a pastor, if there is rhythms that you've implemented um, sometimes those things can be really difficult to upend or to reform because a system by its nature likes, I think, stability and consistency. So it's what often makes the the role of a leader very difficult because, well, they 
probably were involved in building the first one. And even if it's broken, it's comfortable. It does the thing that you, you know, built it to do sometimes decades earlier. So sometimes in my experience, it actually feels like it, it actually fears chaos. It actually systems often hmm. seem to, I don't know, be kind of drawn to stability, consistency, sort of like as bland and predictable as possible. Yeah. But I like the, the very next paragraph here I thought was like a helpful, at least for me, a helpful kind of visual to think about. He says, to achieve systemic change, an exceeding amount of energy from outside the system must be applied. So then he gives these examples. An, un- an unhealthy body needs therapeutic injections. A bad family system needs outside intervention. A bad political system needs outsider candidates. Systemic racism requires changes in the laws and policies that perpetuate discrimination, a difficulty when the people who make the laws are mostly those who prosper from the prejudice. I want to read that last part again, because I think this applies in a lot of categories, but I think that's a keen insight. A difficult, uh, it's a difficulty when the people who make the laws are mostly those who prosper from the prejudice. Another way to put that, I think, is it's hard to speak prophetically to powers that cut your paycheck, you know, mm-hmm. um, whether that's in church or any job or vacation or system for that matter. I think that that is a, that's an important key. It's an important distinction in talking about the much bigger issue of like systemic change. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, uh, it's what makes Jesus's word so amazing when Jesus flips the whole power structure on its head, right? Jesus is the one who could have, uh, you know, uh, personally prospered at all points. And, and he constantly said the last being first. I think that's sometimes we lose the scandal of what Jesus did with power hmm. uh, because we've heard it so often. So later on, he goes at its core, uh, Harold writes, Christianity is about systemic change. Hmm. God so loved the world that he sent his son to save it. Existing outside the system he created, God intervenes with the en- greatest energy of all to redeem it. As Martin Luther King Jr., drawing on his own faith, faith famously put it, darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do it. Hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do it. But an appeal to love can sound so cliched. For many Christian, love tends to get relegated to personal relationships and forgiveness of individual sin. Uh, Inasmuch as structures and systems are composed of component parts, changing an individual person for good can have significant effects, but good people still make for bad systems. Hmm. The whole remains greater than the sum of its parts. For systemic change to happen, the entire system must be addressed. And again, I'll pause there. You and I like you said, as we've kind of taken on the conversation over the last couple of months of systems and systemic issues, oftentimes what people will say to me is, I'm not like that, right. or this person's not like that. And I think this editorial is doing a good job at going, just because individuals may not you know, be racist or be insert whatever else, doesn't mean that there's not work to be done in the overall system that might have problems. And I think when we uh, when we confuse just the individual with the system, I think it becomes easy to make excuses and go, no, everything's fine around here uh, without going at it. And uh, But system change, systemic changes, looking at systems is much more difficult to do than to just look and take individual inventory. I, I think there's a bunch of reasons why it's more difficult to. We, we live in a yeah. highly individualized culture. For many of us, the version of Christianity that we were handed had to do with individual salvation, right, which is not false, but it's only partially true, right? He goes on to reference Revelation 7, where scripture speaks of whole tribes and nations and peoples and languages coming to Christ. In Christ, there is one body and one spirit, one hope to which you were called. 
as one body of Christ, we possess power beyond what any one of us could ever exert on our own. We preach that. We talk about that. Yes. But it is, and I don't think this is true everywhere in the world, but it does feel like in our cultural, intellectual, social context, we're drawn to the individual. So when someone talks about systems or systemic things, especially from a negative perspective, it can be easy for our brains to go, well, but, but I'm a good person, though. So therefore, right. you know, to say that I'm in any way a part of something systemically that could be harming or exploiting someone, of course, we're going to have a knee jerk defense against that because I'm like, well, no, no, I, I think that I'm a good person. And you probably you probably are. But that doesn't mean I think that's why it, it systemic changes still feels, I think, by and large, much more nebulous than like dealing with your own habits or addictions that feels more concrete which is why i think people again i'm not knocking i think it makes sense i i grew up in this you know culture in this context focus on the individual though sometimes i think Mm -hmm. can to a a pretty destructive end at at times miss the greater systemic things that not only exist out there but that we're a part of and that's where i think Mm -hmm. the rubber really hits the road to, to begin to recognize like man i i have in some way either contributed to or benefited from some of these systems sometimes not even aware of it. That's yeah. when the real work I think is done. Like, okay, I'm, I'm still culpable to some degree, even though this wasn't like a cognizant conscious decision yeah. to participate in. And that's, that's where I think it gets muddled. So either way, it's Christianity yeah. today. Um, I have really appreciated the work that's over on our Facebook page. We know that this one might be controversial. So we would love to know what you think over on the Facebook page, the common good radio show coming up next though. What does it mean to give to Caesar what is Caesar's? That's coming up next year on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope you like it. Coming up this hour, what does it mean to give to Caesar what is Caesar's? Seven questions to ask before throwing down online. And we're joined by friend of the show, Father Kenneth Tanner. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everyone. Welcome to part two of The Common Good on this. Uh, see, now I forgot. It's Wednesday, right? I think so. Hump day. You, yes, yeah, I knew. I, I, I teed it up. <laughs> did, you, uh, did you do that earlier, in my absence? Did that still happen? I did not. Oh. Ironically, I did not. And people might be wondering why you'd be like, oh, now I don't remember. Before we got on the show, I wished you a happy Tuesday. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, was that not live? That wasn't during the show? Oh, oh. I don't well, think so. Now I, I just sound you. silly. And you were just like, it's Wednesday. I'm like, well, one of those days. <laughs> <laughs> What are you going to do? Okay, so uh, I guess I haven't mentioned the particulars yet either. I am all over the place today. We're on Facebook, the Common Good Radio Show. Every article we reference on the show is posted there. We would love for you to weigh in there. And your comments may get read on on the show. Also, you can send us a private message there if you want to go that route. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at Common Good Talk, 1160hope.com slash the Common Good and wherever it is you listen to find podcasts, they also somehow let ours squeak in there as well. You can subscribe, rate, and review. Not only you can, it would mean the world to us. And uh, we know that plenty of you already have. Thank you for doing so. This is a, a, a topic that I don't know why. It's, it's come up a number of times as of late. And it's, the, it's from Matthew 22. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. This is from David C. Kramer. And I would love, Brian, for you to kind of get us into this article a bit. 
Yeah, let me jump in here at Pathios. It says, in the story recounted in Matthew 22, Jesus speaks the well-known phrase, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. Most Christians take Jesus's words here fairly straightforwardly to suggest that we have dual allegiances, one to Caesar and one to God. The goal of the faithful citizen then is to determine what we owe to which and then act accordingly. Yes, there may be those rare occasions when our dual allegiances collide. And in those cases, we must, of course, choose God over Caesar. But in general, serving Caesar and serving God are basically compatible. The problem, he writes, with this understanding of Jesus' saying is that it neglects the context of the story. We're told that Jesus gives this reply in response to a trap set for him by some Pharisees and Herodians. His answer so amazes his questioners that they leave him be for the time being. So to understand what Jesus is saying, we first have to understand what the trap is and how Jesus's words get him out of it. So Mennonite New Testament scholar, uh, Willard Swartley, that sounds like a good Mennonite name, doesn't it? Willard Swartley. <laughs> I don't know what that means. <laughs> describes the trap well. The tax issue, he writes, in first century Palestine was explosive. The zealots, revolutionaries against Rome, refused payment. The Sadducees and certainly the Herodians who collaborated with Rome paid taxes in good conscience. The Pharisees, having internalized and legalized their piety, paid but with anguish. It's safe to say that the Pharisees and the Herodians considered Jesus to be on the other side of the issue. They held him to be a tax refuser. The trap was set. For Jesus to say no to the payment of taxes would have publicly exposed him as an insurrectionist, giving the Romans an excuse to rid the land of him. By saying, yes, pay taxes, Jesus would have settled with the same compromise as that of the Herodians and Pharisees, an unlikely position for Jesus. So Swartley notes that one of the charges brought against Jesus at his trial before Pilate was precisely that he taught others to refuse to pay taxes. Right. As the Gospel of Luke describes, the entire council took Jesus to Pilate. They began to state their case. This man has been leading our people astray, telling them not to pay taxes to the Roman government and claiming he is the Messiah, a king. So before we continue moving on here, uh, you're right when you say this is one of those verses that's getting thrown a lot around right now, right? Mm -hmm. uh, how do we respond to COVID? How do we vote? What do we do with all of this stuff? And so trying to get at an understanding of what Jesus was really getting at, especially as he's kind of speaking towards this trap they set for him, really become, it's another situation where you got to know the context before you pull these verses uh, out and use them for teaching. Right. And I don't know if we're going to be able to get into all of it, which I feel like we say every segment, like, oh, the whole thing's up the Facebook page. But I, I'm going to read a little bit more to kind of set the stage a little bit, because I think yeah, the con context matters, but it's also something that I think is a really, a really timely thing for us to wrestle with today. So he says in the story, the Pharisees and Sadducees are trying to get Jesus to come straight out and say not to pay taxes to Rome so that they can report him for insurrection. The reason we miss this is because we think of Jesus as basically a white evangelical megachurch pastor on a grand speaking tour. We fail to recognize that Jesus has more in common with a prisoner of war than he does with a megachurch pastor. His homeland and his people are under the occupation of a foreign empire. As someone who claims to be the Messiah or liberator of his people, he is under close surveillance of his occupiers. Anything he says or does can be used against him in a court of law. The Pharisees and Herodians know this because as fellow Jews, they too are subject to the same occupation. They have each made their peace with the best uh, with the best they could. The Pharisees get along by staying out of the way of their Roman occupiers and focusing on worship and adherence to the Torah. The Herodians get along by cozying up to their Roman occupiers and in so doing, gaining political power 
Jesus's message of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God disrupts both of these attempted compromises, which makes Jesus a threat. And what better way to eliminate a threat than to trap him into saying something self-incriminating? But Jesus knows this is what they're up to. And so he turns the tables. So, again, uh, do we got time? Can I read Stanley Harawas's response? Yeah, you should. Yeah. I just I'm a fan of Harawas. And I think what he says here is really important. This is uh, Stanley Harwas's words. Jesus requests the coin minted to pay the tax to be given to him. He does not possess the coin. He does not carry the coin, quite possibly because the coin carriers carries the image of Caesar. Jesus's question is meant to, to remind those who carry the coin of the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above or is on earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. Jesus' answer that the things of God are to be given to God and not to the emperor is a reminder to those who produce the coin that the very possession of the coin makes them idolaters. Jesus is not recommending in his response to the Pharisee that we learn to live with divine loyalties, but rather is saying that all the idolatrous coins should be sent back to Caesar where they belong. Just as Jesus knows no distinction between politics and religion, neither does he know any distinction between politics, economics, and the worship of God. Those who have asked him whether they should pay taxes to the emperor are revealed to be the emperor's faithful servants by the money they possess. No one can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth, nor can you serve God and the emperor. I'll pause there. That's a bit of a bomb. What do you think? Yeah, I think it's so powerful. And it again, putting it into the context of what we're talking about here uh, allows us to see what Jesus was really saying as opposed to misinterpreting. Like, I love what he says later. He says, uh, if we owe our undivided allegiance to God, how do we live as faithful citizens of God's kingdom when we're already implicated in the kingdoms of this world? Like, that's what Jesus is getting at. And he's causing us to consider that. And I think especially as we come upon an election right now, uh, that's something we all need to wrestle with, that we are uh, not, uh, you know, this world is not our home, but we're sent into this world and that Jesus is our Lord. But we're still called to you know live in a culture and vote and whatever else. I think this is a really important article. I would encourage, as you said, people to go to the Facebook page because there's a lot more to it. But I think it adds great understanding to what this kind of uh, confusing verse gets at here. Yeah, let me just read how he ends the article because I think it's he puts it better than I could put it. He says there are no easy answers here. We cannot simply line up two columns and make a checklist of things to give to Caesar and things to give to God. Our task is to discern together how to be faithful citizens in the culture and society in which we reside. This discernment will take us beyond simply lining up Bible verses that talk about politics. In the words of the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome, it will require that we offer our bodies to God because of all that God has done for us, letting them be a living and holy sacrifice. It will require that we don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform us into a new people by changing the way we think. Only then will we learn to know God's will for us, that which is good and pleasing and perfect. And that is from Romans 12. Either way, uh, I thought that was well-written, a timely word, something regardless of where you land politically or theologically or socially, like just, a, I think a good challenge, a good charge. And there's plenty that we didn't have time to read. As always, that is on the Facebook page, the common good radio show. And we would love to know what you think about that coming up next though. We have a real treat for you. Our friend, father, Kenneth Tanner, he's the pastor of Holy Redeemer in Rochester Hills, Michigan. Also, I think just a prolific writer and thinker. He's going to stick around for the next two segments here on the common good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. 
Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. And I, I don't know if I can say friend of the show yet. I'd like to say friend of the show, but I don't want to be presumptuous yet. Welcome <laughs> back to the show, Father Kenneth Tanner. Hello, Ian and Brian. Thanks for having me on uh, Common Good again. It's our pleasure, and I truly mean that. And I would love for you to take just a, a minute or two and introduce or reintroduce yourself to our audience, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, I'm a pastor in uh, North Suburban Detroit, uh, about a half an hour north. We uh, were in Chicago for six years uh, before we came here in 2005. I've been pastor uh, for 16 years working on uh, at Holy Redeemer, which is a, a, a Anglican adjacent uh, <laughs> congregation um, and uh, combining uh, both uh, traditional and ancient um, and contemporary uh, practices, worship practices, um, and uh, young congregation, uh, about uh, 150 souls, uh, I think. COVID, yeah, yeah. COVID, uh, <laughs> COVID, that's a whole nother topic. Um, and uh, I, I do a lot of writing um, for um, a number of online journals. Um, and uh, so, uh, in which I enjoy doing, I mostly write about Jesus, um, <laughs> which I also am very much uh, astonished by and, and passionate about. Uh, and uh, I have seven children and we have two grandchildren with one of our, our number five a child, uh, Caitlin has given us two and her husband, Thomas has given us two delightful grandchildren. Uh, Leela named after my paternal, uh, grandmother, um, and, uh, Abraham, mm. uh, Leela will be three on election day <laughs> and, uh, November 3rd, she's got her golden birthday, uh, and uh, and then Abraham will be one on New Year's Eve. So wow, wow, wow. that's great. It's and great I'm a you- little obsessed with them too. So. Yeah, <laughs> as every grandparent seems to say, uh, we're thrilled to have you back on. I want to get back into your church. I'm looking on your website, and you've one of the most um, uh, interesting descriptions on like you know we all have the welcome page at our website, and yours says Holy Redeemers, where sacramental and contemporary forms of worship converge with a passion for the Holy Scripture, evangelical witness, and the signs that accompany the gospel. And then it says such a church uh-huh. may seem impossible. Uh, if we were to walk into your church, non-COVID time, obviously everything's different now. Describe how that church just does look different to the point that you describe it. It might seem impossible. Tell us more about your church. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, you're going to walk in and you'll see icons. And um, if you walk in the right part of the service, there'll be incense, um, though, you know, people in robes. Um, but there's also people in contemporary clothes. Um, certainly our, our our music director um, is up there with the, you know, uh, drummers and guitarists. Um, so you'll, you'll be hearing prayers that were, you know, written um, in the early centuries. Uh, you'll also be hearing prayers that we have written that are very contemporary, um, that are addressing more more contemporary concerns. Uh, you'll hear songs that uh, might have been written in the Reformation or in 19th century evangelical uh, settings and uh, then, but you'll also hear things from like Porter's Gate or, uh, you know, urban doxology or, um, 
you know, um, you know, young oceans and, and you know, Audrey Assad and so forth and so on. Mm. So uh, the music is runs the gamut. The prayers run the gamut. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a very focused on the person of Jesus, uh, um, you know, in our in our reading of scripture and our prayer and our singing uh, and in our fellowship, uh, because he alone shows us what it means to be God and what what it means uh, to be human, which is something that I think gets left out of the discussion and out of our contemplation. Uh, so he's very much the center. So, um, yeah, it's it brings a lot of things together. It may seem impossible to do that, but um, we find that it actually um, works really well. Great. Hmm. One of the things that I've appreciated in a lot of your writing and Brian and I have talked about this a number of times since we started this show that in some circles, words like liturgy are still seen as almost a dirty word. And there's a, there's a lot of baggage for a lot of people, but there, there also seems to be like a resurgence of interest in liturgical expressions, mainly among millennials and younger. I'd love to know, I guess that's kind of a two part question. One, why do you think that there's still so much hang up and baggage around things like liturgy or sacrament? And two, do you think there's a resurgent interest in young people? And if so, why do you think that is? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, everybody has liturgy. You know, every, every congregation, every church, mm-hmm. um, you could have a house church. And you, what you like to do is gather around the living room furniture and you have somebody opens with a prayer and then somebody shares uh, some experience that they had during the week Um and, and and then you sing a couple of songs and 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 so it, it, liturgy is this you know it, it's the order right and uh, so you two fast songs uh, one slow song uh, you know forty minute sermon uh, appeal you know everybody has it right so um, but uh, but there was a pattern in the synagogue. And there was a pattern with the first Christians that followed very closely synagogue worship, and uh, it, which w- involved uh, readings from the scriptures. You get the scrolls out just like Jesus does, um, and uh, and read from Isaiah or what have you. Read from the Psalms, and then there would be a pr- there would be singing. Uh, there would be someone would get up and expound the scriptures. We have a sermon, um, and uh, then you'd pray for the needs of the world and the needs of the community. Uh, And uh, what the, that's what would happen. And if you go to synagogue now, it's very much what what goes on. Uh, The Christians added the last supper to that order. Um, And at the, unfortunately at the reformation, you know, we split that up again and Mm. stop celebrating the Lord's supper, the Eucharist, the communion, um, as a as a weekly part of what we do on Sunday mornings, but um, that's only in certain parts, right? I mean, that's America has more of those kinds of churches than the world does even now. The vast majority mm-hmm. of Christians around the world still bring synagogue and the Last Supper together, um, mm-hmm. and throughout history, the vast majority of Christians have worshipped in that way. It's a very unusual, either American or you know, sort of English speaking. Uh, world where evangelical Pentecostal spirituality or something coming out of the late Reformation where those things have been divorced from each other. I think young people are looking for authenticity. Uh, 
Um, mm. And I think they feel rightly that there's something authentic about coming together and simply hearing the word of God and contemplating the person of Jesus by what we're hearing, bringing Jesus as our rabbi to whatever text we're listening to, hmm. and to song, um, both contemporary and ancient. And there's something authentic about praying, um, just like as a as a group of people, uh, spending significant amount of time in prayer. So that preaching isn't the only thing that's happening. You're not just in a in a room being lectured at, right. there's a lot of participation. You're getting up, you're standing up, you're kneeling, you're singing and praying. There's back and forth between those who are leading and, and, and uh, those who are participating. Um, so it's, it's not, you're not an audience, you know, you, you, you're get you're getting drawn into the drama uh, of the story. And uh, there's something uh, really authentic about a meal and sitting down at a meal, um, a lot of things you can do about worship you can do online, but man, we cannot create the meal That's right. or re- re- recreate the meal online. Um, so, and, and we could get into some of the forces that I think have driven young people, you know, towards, um, you know, towards more ancient forms. Yeah. Uh, but, but the ancient forms aren't, I mean, you know, I mean, apart, I mean, I always, the Holy Spirit is so important. And, um, you know, it, it's these things, uh, all of these practices uh, come from, uh, are expressed from, a, you know, a, a sense of trust hmm. and, and expectation and anticipation of God's presence. Um, before we bid him, he's there and making room for him. And attending to God uh, is so very important because we can go and go. It doesn't matter what your liturgy is, Baptist, Lutheran, Orthodox, um, Adventist, whatever it may be. Um, you know, you can just go through the motions and hmm. say the words and do this and do that. And it's not quite the same thing, is it? That's great. If you're just joining us, our guest is Father Kenneth Tanner. He's the pastor at Holy Redeemer in my home state, America's High Five of Michigan. <laughs> He's also a writer and a theologian and just an all-around brilliant thinker. He's going to stick around for one more segment. And I'm going to ask him about an article he wrote recently called Loitering with Jesus. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. And fingers crossed, I'm hoping that this will become a bit of a regular rhythm for us because Father Kenneth Tanner is just one of my favorite voices. I think there's we have a number of mutual friends who I know also feel the same way. But I think the way that you pastor people, I think the way that you think about things, both theologically, academically, but also pastorally, is is so needed and so unique and so timely and I just think you're a really gifted writer as well. One of the things you wrote yesterday is an article called Loitering with Jesus. And I uh, cards on the table, your kind of thesis of this article is a passion area of mine and has been for a while. But I'd, I'd love for you to just kind of first give us a, a 30,000 foot view of that article and then uh, and then we'll kind of get into the weeds a little bit. Yeah. Um, thank you, Ian. Um I, I hope that what you and your friends um, are attracted to is astonishment hmm. with Christ um, and not with any particular way that I happen to 
um, embody that, but it, the, uh, he's everything to me. That's, and so I think, um, one of the things that I, I, I think has happened, um, for contemporary people who trust the story that we trust and the way we do worship is that, um, there's an expectation when we gather that that the preacher or the the person who's speaking um, on the scriptures, hopefully, um, it needs to give us some practical application um, mm-hmm. to take away from you know their uh, narration of the story, their t- retelling of the story, their proclamation of the gospel. And I've been trying to argue recently uh, for the last several years that there's a beauty in just dwelling on the person of Jesus as he's revealed in whatever gospel story or whatever letter of Paul or John um, or whatever, even Old Testament story, like the story of Joseph or story of David, um, story of Rebecca and um, story of Deborah and so forth. Um, all of these stories, Esther, um, how Christ is revealed in these stories and just adore the beauty and sit with the majesty and reflect on who this person is and what, what these stories tell us about what it means to be God and what it means to be human. Hmm. And, and that that's, that's enough that I don't need to add, like, here's what you need to do because I've told you the story hmm. or, and, and there's a lot of reasons. I mean, I can get into the reasons why I think, it's important not to do that. I mean, it, sometimes you need to, but I think I would like to do it a lot less. Hmm. I go ahead with those reasons. I'm very, I'm fascinated to know what you think are the reasons why that's applications, not always necessary in the way that we do it. Yeah. I, I just think I, I, first of all, he is who we were. I mean, to just waste our time thinking about him, pondering him, under just looking at Christ, what he says and what he does, because every time he says or does something, we're eavesdropping on the hidden life that he shared forever hmm. with the Father and the Spirit, and we're made in his image. So when I'm watching what he does and I'm listening to what he says, I'm learning what it means, what my vocation, you know, what my life as a human being. So if my if my thoughts are on, if he's the model, <laughs> And he, you know, and it's, I mean, that's, you know, he's so much more than the model. He's God, um, mm-hmm. you know, to, to contemplate his person changes me. Um, I, I also think it's the problem with, um, I think we'll, we preach on a given passage in the scriptures and just let it be proclaim what it proclaims and say what it says and tell what it tells. And then if we don't offer a application, the Holy Spirit gets in the space between the speaker and the listener hmm. and allows every listener to have the Holy Spirit say to them what it is that they're right. supposed to do with this instead of making it a cookie cutter approach to everyone and every situation, every person. Also, I know from these young people that have come and they've been listening to sermons for 20 or 30 years all of the to-do list and all the things they've been told to do create tremendous burden on the listener. You know, did I do what they asked me to do last Mm -hmm. week? Or, um, and and it gets really negative when that becomes like, did I do what it takes to keep this particular institution going? Or did I, the the programs that we're trying to do, 
but, you know, also just the sort of moral claims, you know, that did I check off all these boxes and I do all the right things. Um, we began to start thinking about ourselves as the mm-hmm. source of our salvation and not Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it, God is the agent of our salvation. Right, right. So one of the things that I noticed early in ministry was that there seemed to be this shift away from people asking, is it true? And more like, does it work? Like, will this applying these three principles, will it make my marriage better? Or will this straighten my kids out? Or again, like a very utilitarian, like if I plug X, Y, and Z into my life, will I get the results that I, you know, will this infomercial pan out the way that you're promising it? And I, one of the things that I've been kind of challenging our church to think through in, in writing messages and sermons is maybe, maybe rather than like, you know, the end being the application, what if it's the response? Cause sometimes the response is now go and do likewise. Now go but sometimes yeah. like you're saying, the yeah. response is just awe. like just go be captivated this week. Just go be still like what, what role do you think awe and captivation and, and maybe even things like, like beauty and wonder, what, what role do you think that, that has in, in what you're saying? Rest. Mm. Stop. Doing. <laughs> Be the presence of Christ uh, in the world. Um, and, uh, and, 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 you know, you've got to get off of the, and, and because the, I mean, everything else in life tells us that, you know, here is the, here's the wheel and you need to get on it and run as fast as you can. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of times uh, we need to build, especially now, um, cause I don't think it's getting any better, you know, um, is we really need to learn how to rest and contemplate and be still recognize that God is God. We're not um, that he is, that he is going to bring salvation. And I'm not, to the world and to us. And I'm not talking about being quietest. I mean, obviously that we will be compelled into action by the spirit. There are people who need the presence of Jesus in all sorts of ways. Uh, the poor, the oppressed, uh, the immigrant, uh, the, the stranger, um, uh, the hungry, the prisoner, uh, where we'll also find Jesus and behold him and see him and, uh, in, in, in an active way, but there's a balance. And I think we've gotten, way too far off uh, that balance. Hmm. We're so glad that you joined us today, Ken. I'm curious, people are probably like, I want to read more. Where can I find more? Oh, right. uh, so website, social media, give everything you can for where people can find you. Yeah. So a lot of things these days go up on Medium. You can you know, follow long, especially long pieces. Uh, Kenneth Tanner uh, on Medium. Um, Clarion Journal publishes a lot of things. Uh, by me these days, I, H- H- Mockingbird is another site that has been publishing my, my stuff. If you Google Kenneth Tanner, um, y- you'll see things from all, all over the place. And of course, I, I post on Instagram at Ken Tanner, K E N T A, K E N T A N N E R, um, and then on Facebook as Kenneth Tanner. And uh, uh, I think if <laughs> it's it's so chock full of <laughs> meditations on Jesus that you won't mistake me for someone else but, um, and, and or pictures of my grandchildren. So. There, you right. go. there you go. <laughs> and I, I can vouch for all of that. If you're just joining us, by the way, that's been father Kenneth Tanner, pastor, at Holy Redeemer in Rochester Hills, Michigan. 
cannot encourage you all enough to follow him, check out his writing. Ken, thank you again for being so gracious with your time and joining us today. Oh, Brian and Annie, and it's really great to be with you. God's peace. God bless you and your listeners. Likewise, brother. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Everyone, welcome back to the Common Good, and uh, we got we got a case of the giggles over here. The Common Good, that is. I just wish people could hear between segments. <laughs> nothing, nothing more terrifying than realizing that you may be spiraling into uncontrollable laughter right. right before right. you're about to go live. Like that is like the adult version of <laughs> like laughing during family prayer when you're a kid, and you're like, no, 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 don't laugh now, don't laugh now. Uh, it's like your psyche knows now would be a bad time to laugh. Yeah. And is just punking you. You're like, yeah, we're going to laugh right now. <laughs> Go gonna, for it. You're going to laugh more right now. And we're live. That's just that's just how it goes sometimes. A little inside peek into the realities of the show. Uh, real quick, before we get rolling here, this is something. This is by John Acuff, by the way. I don't know if you're a fan of John Acuff. I, I, I am. I think, yeah. he's, I think he's such a gifted writer. And he, as I somehow managed to stay above the fray of any scandal, which at this point sounds miraculous. But he wrote seven <laughs> questions to ask. Before you throw down online, um, which I think is a timely word. Briefly, though, do you want to know some of the uh, the holidays today? I was just about to ask you. So, yes, yes, I do. Okay, here are a couple. I just had this for the first time. National Pumpkin Cheesecake Day. Have you had okay. pumpkin pie cheesecake? So, a uh, controversial statement this time of year. I don't like pumpkin-related f- uh, food. I do not. I'm not a pumpkin fan. Not pumpkin pie? Not pumpkin spice lattes. Well, not, I know I like cheesecake, so I might, you know, we'll see. But no, I know I have a theory that either love pumpkin stuff or you dis or you hate it. And I'm I'm in the I very much dislike pumpkin. So when you say we'll see, does that mean you're going to try it the way that you're going to watch the social dilemma? Is that <laughs> is that what I'm hearing? No, I'm not trying it. Okay, great. I am going to see the social dilemma, but no, I'm not going to try pumpkin. <laughs> <laughs> have have you yet? No. Okay. No. Uh, no. National no. Reptile Awareness Day. So aware. be aware of them. Ha- yes. Hagfish day. I'm not even going to Google that one. I have no idea. Uh, medical assistance recognition day. That's awesome. That's a good one. It's uh, army day in Honduras. It's St. Ursula's day in the British Virgin islands. Ursula. Huh. Is, you should see the character from like Aladdin. Little yeah. mermaid. Little Aladdin. mermaid. Not Aladdin. <laughs> what? It's. <laughs> I mean, maybe. I don't know. It's also Apple no, Day. It's, it's just Apple Day. You guys, you should do okay. that. Not the company, I don't think. Maybe. <laughs> Does the company get their own day? Either way, we got to move on. Here's a list, Brian. This is my gift to you. Thank you. Seven questions to ask before you throw down online. You want to get us into them? I do. Can I just tell you, I did Google the hagfish, which was a mistake. Yeah. Uh, it is an eel-shaped, slime-producing marine fish. So there you go. Wow. That I wish I didn't know that. Yeah. So anyway, we talk often here on the show about uh, how often do we post something online or more so comment to somebody else's post and then regret doing it or like it just uh, comes across as angry. And and John Acuff here uh, writes seven questions to ask yourself before you do that, uh, before joining a Facebook argument, because oftentimes if you ask yourself these questions, you're going to end up going, yeah, it's not worth it. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's not worth the fight. And so let's go through these seven questions. The first one Acuff writes is this. Do I even care about this topic? Uh, You would think this one would be intuitive, but you'd be surprised. Have you ever had an argument with a spouse, a boyfriend, a girlfriend or friend? And during the middle of the argument, someone yells, what are we even fighting about? (laughs) 
guilty. Yes. Uh, <laughs> we have the ability to fight about things, he says, that don't really matter to us. It's all also easy for arguments to start in one place and quickly head someplace else. So as you look at a post on Facebook, honestly ask yourself, do I care about this topic? And if you have a hard time answering that, ask, would my friends say that I care about this topic? <laughs> if the answer is yes, proceed with the rest of the questions. If the answer is no, move on. That's pretty good. The second one is like it. Do I really know anything about this topic? He says there are large segments of the Internet populated by, quote, instant experts. These are the bold souls whose volume of arguing greatly outweighs the volume of knowledge they actually <laughs> possess about the topic. Don't be like that. Instead, engage in arguments you either already know a lot about or want to learn about. He says the debating something and asking questions of someone who legitimately knows a lot can be a great way to learn. Got a strong political stance that has been built primarily off of fourth hand knowledge gained from a coworker <laughs> who really hates some politician. That's not knowledge. That's gossip. That's a good one. <laughs> Number three. Do I know the person who started it? Ah, oh, it's a good oh. one. Before you argue with a stranger online, go find a random apartment complex in your town. <laughs> Knock on the door of someone you've never met. When he opens the door, start telling him about the evils of gluten, the importance of essential oils, or your favorite movie. <laughs> That'd be weird, right? Uh, then why do we do the exact same thing on Facebook without thinking twice? Arguing with a friend is a completely different experience. You have a relationship with them. You have right. some degree of history. Uh, you won't be drunk on the false sense of courage social media offers you. You're more likely to be honest, kind, and measured in a discussion with your friends. So ask yourself, do I actually know this person? That is super good. This We're going to kind of get into it now. So am I starting from a place of anger? I know that when we Christians are angry, we're supposed to use the story where Jesus cleared the temple as an example that it's okay for us to be angry. I understand that. I do. I'm just suggesting that your anger over a Facebook argument might not be the same as that of a savior who cleared the temple that he'd been visiting his entire life. If you're already angry about the topic or just mad from a bad day you had, put your participation on pause. Rage never leads to discussion. Ooh, that's good. Rage never leads to discussion. It leads to more rage and words you can't take back even if you delete the comment you left. Our words, even our online words, leave a residue on the lives they land on. Be careful. I don't think you should count to 10 before you post anything on Facebook. I think in some situations, you should sleep on your idea overnight before you launch into a discussion you might be too hot for. That's a good word. That's a good one. Is it worth my time? That's his next question. Arguing online takes two types of time from you. The first is the time you spend creating your comment. The second is the time you spend thinking about your comment and the argument. The first type is pretty small. It doesn't take that long to make it. It's the second type of time that's expensive and sneaky. Have you ever been in an argument with someone at work? As you drive home, you still think about it over dinner. Uh, he, what he said to you gnaws at you. You think an argument on Facebook wouldn't cause the same damage, but you'd be wrong. Online or offline, arguing leaves a mark. So before you get involved, ask if this conversation deserves that sort of time from the rest of your day. Okay, so these aren't numbered. I have no idea which one we're even on anymore at this point. We have point. two more to go. One for uh, you, one for me. Perfect. What's my motive? The internet would be a lot nicer place if everyone had noble motives. It would be wonderful if people only brought up topics to discuss so they could educate friends and strangers on important issues of the day in a kind, compassionate manner. If you view Facebook for 12 seconds, though, you know that's not the case. People argue online for a variety of reasons that we can't control, but we can control our own motive. And that starts with honestly admitting what it is. Are you getting into an argument because you felt like a loser all day and just want to win something? Are you trying to embarrass someone you don't like? Are you revenge commenting because the person who started a new post hurt your feelings a month ago? 
Are you just trying to make a bunch of strangers think you are smart and articulate? If your motive is anything other than, I think I have something helpful to add to this discussion. Rethink your desire to participate. Good motives lead to good discussions. Bad motives start bad and tend to stay bad. Last one. Will it change anything? Hmm. Know what one, know, uh, what no one has ever said? The way you belittled me and heatedly yelled at me online changed my long-held personal beliefs on that topic. Thank you. <laughs> Does that mean you can't change someone's opinion or maybe impact the discussion for the better on Facebook? Not at all. Change is possible. I've seen people come around on issues because of conversations online. I think there's a lot of healthy discourse online. Just know ahead of time, though, that if your desire is to change people's opinions every time you get into an argument online, you're not going to enjoy the Internet very much. <laughs> if someone is arguing with profanity, abusive words and anger, don't engage. You're not going to change what they believe. They're just going to cha- uh, they're just going to change how much time you have left in your day. Uh, the reason I think it's important to ask questions like this is that no generation has ever dealt with Facebook arguments before and there's very few precedents he says to it and so sometimes we just need to sit it out so john acuff in his humorous way this is really helpful because some people get in way too many arguments on facebook and uh unnecessary uh in the long run yeah i think kind of what i want to do is copy and paste those seven questions and make them like my desktop on my laptop just to stare me down in the face before i post the next time which i think anyway these aren't just like arbitrary like oh we should all play nicer on social media i think especially if you're someone who considers themselves a christ follower like coming up to this election we know that it's going to get heated What, what would it look like for us to like lead the way well to uh to not only be engaging well but maybe even elevating some of the discussions and you know, hopefully maybe diminishing the number of uh, unhelpful, toxic arguments. And like he talks about speaking out of love instead of rage, I think is something that we could all benefit from. And with that, we conclude today's show on this lovely Wednesday. Don't worry, though. We'll be back tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, my name is Ian Simpkins, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. <laughs>